Luke 4, 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke, the physician, wrote this book as a record of Jesus' ministry. It is the first volume of his two-volume set, which is Luke and Acts. This text today, Luke 4.18, is a a record of a very short sermon or a sermon summary in the synagogue right after he was tempted in the wilderness. The story also takes place in a synagogue in Jesus' hometown in Nazareth. After he read these words from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58, 6, he sat down and he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. At first, the crowd marveled at what he said, but they asked if he was Joseph's son. His response was enough to cause them to lose their minds in rage. The entire synagogue erupted in anger, and in their mob anger, they drove him to a short cliff with the intention of throwing him off to his death. But Jesus passed through their midst because it was not yet his time to die. That is a summary of what's happening here and a summary of what we have just read. It is helpful also to uh, consider a few matters about the synagogue in which he was sitting. By the way, for those of you who are new, welcome. You get to hear something that's kind of like a, a research paper slash sermon. So there are footnotes here. A typical Jewish synagogue was outfitted with benches around its perimeter. So around the edge, there are benches. The open space is open. The, the center space is open. So imagine this room, but there's no central seating section. There's just benches, kind of like the choir loft, but around the sides. That was what it looked like. Women and men were separated. Uh, they had certain seating areas. And the men were seated according to rank and importance. There were other fixtures in the synagogue as well, candlesticks, musical instruments, horns and trumpets. Uh, Floor coverings were also standard decor. A Torah cupboard and a podium both were elevated on a stand, and they commanded the focal point in the front and center of the synagogue. During worship, a Torah scroll was first produced or brought forth from the, the Torah chest. So they'd open up this chest and bring out the scroll followed by a scroll from the prophets, both of which were read aloud from the adjacent podium. Scripture was read from a standing position, but the expository sermon that followed was delivered from a seated position. So you'd read the scripture and then sit down and preach. That was the standard practice. Um, A minister who retrieved the scroll from the Torah Torah cupboard and returned them to its... uh, place, that's the person who would preside over the service. Uh, Scripture readings were not the prerogative of the particular individuals or officers, but could be assigned to any member of the congregation, including minors. So once someone was like, Andy, why is Anais reading the Bible in church? It's like, why would she not read the Bible in church? You can have a teenager read the Bible in church. That's fine. I've been reading the Bible in church since the Old Testament. Um, so anyway, they'd read an assigned text in front of everybody, and then uh, someone would deliver uh, the sermon. 
This story, this narrative that picks up in verse 17, commences between the reading of the Torah and the prophets and preserves key liturgical elements standing to read, unrolling the scroll, services of the minister, and the seated proclamation in their proper order. Jesus' keynote address, in other words, is not delivered in an elite Qumran worship service or an experimental service of the heterodox Samaritan Jews, but in an ordinary mainline Jewish synagogue. Close quote. So that was all from James Edwards' commentary, The Gospel According to Luke. This author, Edwards, has helpfully noted the chiastic structure from verses 16 through 20, which centers in verse 18. So our text today is the center of this literary unit. It's the center of a chiasm, which a chiasm or a chiastic structure is kind of an X-shaped structure, or it's something like a, B, B, A, or A, B, C, C, B, A. So you have this, this uh, convergence of these ideas. So what that looks like is uh, A through E, and then E through A. So line A is into the synagogue, and then at the bottom, the, line, the bottom line A, verse 16 and verse 20, the bottom A says in the synagogue. Line B, he stood up to read. The bottom line B in verse 20 is he sat down to read. The top line C is the scroll was handed to him. The bottom line C is he gave the scroll back. Then point D, he unrolled the scroll. And the bottom D is he rolled the scroll back. And then the middle line E is this text, this message. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. So you have these rituals. You have these steps. They're in the synagogue. You have the standing to read, receiving the scroll, unrolling the scroll, Here's the sermon, here's the reading, and then the reversal of all those steps. Rolling back up the scroll, giving the scroll back, sitting down, preaching the sermon in the synagogue. Then there's the uproar, which we're not really concerned with today. This specific text that we're looking at, verses 18 in the first line of verse 19, this specific text reading is from Isaiah. Now, our text... And Isaiah is a favorite of liberation theologians. I'm not calling anyone names with that. That's just what it is. It's what, you're a liberation theologian if you hold to liberation theology. Uh, I've personally heard a 12-minute sermon on this text from a liberation theologian in an Episcopal church here in New York City. And it, would, it said about what you would expect from an Episcopalian priestess whose church operates a food pantry every day and has almost no attendees on Sunday. It was a very standard fare sermon for a mainline liberal progressive church. Imagine with me, uh, visualize a homily that says effectively, Jesus came to dismantle the patriarchy, defund the police, and overthrow capitalism. Thankfully, it was only 12 minutes. Now... Commentator Wilcox references this in his commentary on the text. So he, he acknowledges, like, oh, this, is, this text is a favorite of people who want to weaponize the scripture to accomplish a certain political agenda. Wilcox refers to this. He says, quote, The revolutionary nature of this passage has been touched upon earlier. Now, in the footnotes, which we'll cite here, the reference is on page 37. But see the whole passage on this scope from chapter 139, uh, the heart, through verse 80. Um, 
It is not legitimate to take the revolution and liberation sayings of Jesus as a political manifesto, to claim that they justify the attempt to set up by force one system of government instead of another is to misinterpret them radically by taking them quite out of their context. So he's saying, if you're trying to do that with these passages, you're taking them way out of context, and that's not what Jesus is actually saying. It is not that Luke dwells, um, it is not on that that Luke dwells. It is not on the revolutionary nature of what he's saying, but on the next words of Jesus, which arise from the reaction of his hearers. So you see in this text, just this short little description of this sermon, verses 18 and 19, and then you see a much, much longer description of what follows. And that's the focus of the text. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, that's not the focus of this message. This message is looking at the text, verse 18. Leon Morris sets the stage for our consideration of this text by saying, the words prophesy of the Messiah's ministry to people in distress, the poor, the captives, or prisoners of war, the blind and the oppressed. Jesus' application of the words to himself shows that the sense of vocation that came with a heavenly voice at his baptism remained strong. So his sense of calling remained strong because of the Spirit's anointing. Jesus saw himself as coming with good news for the world's troubled people. The acceptable year of the Lord does not, of course, represent any calendar year, but is a, is a way of referring to this era, era of salvation. Before we consider an alternate angle, close quote, before we consider an alternate angle of this reading, we must first consider it at face value. Jesus, the prophesied Messiah, who spoke repeatedly, Uh, who was spoken of repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, has appeared on the scene here in the pages of Luke. And his first recorded message is that of that he came for the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. Now, if I've learned anything from theological progressives' take on the concept of the poor and their ministry to the poor, it is that they want to look like they have a ministry to the poor without actually having a ministry to the poor. Church planners want diversity, but to actually move into the hood, to actually live among the poor, to preach and teach and disciple them, to visit them in prison literally, to pursue them when they stray, that is a cost that is usually too high. And if this is so clearly our experience or my experience, what a wonder it is that the greatest man who ever lived, God incarnate, arrived on the earth and made his first short sermon a message stating his concern for the dregs of society. Calvin observed, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. These words inform us that both in his own person and in his ministers, Christ does not act by human authority. So he's saying, the Spirit is the one who put this message on me. It's not my authority, it's the authority of the Holy Spirit. And it did not come by private capacity, by private revelation, but remember Jesus' anointing with the Spirit when the dove came down on him at his baptism. And Jesus has been sent by God to restore salvation to his church. Close quote. In Christ's incarnation, he became a true human. He lived with a true human mind, true human thoughts and emotions. 
He did not do his ministry either in the power of his human flesh or was human flesh or human nature, neither did he tap into his divine mind, but as a true human, he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and under the Spirit's anointing. He performed the ministry which God by the Spirit had prepared for him. Jesus was still divine. He did not lose any of his essential deity. He retained his full deity, yet his divine nature was veiled with his human nature. And he walked on this earth as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you are up on your Trinitarian heresies, you'll know what we're being very careful to avoid is avoiding the heresy of Apollinarianism, which is a denial of the true human mind of Jesus. We've spent so much energy defending his deity that we have forgotten about his true humanity. So we're like, yeah, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God. Yes, he is and was. But in his incarnation, the, the, the mystery of it was that God became man and that God added humanity to his deity and that he lived on this earth as the God-man, but as a man. So he's walking on this earth, he's eating food, he's sleeping at night, he's talking to people as a human yet without sin. He did his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit of God rested upon him. The Spirit of God anointed him. In that same source, Calvin also notes that the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus for this task, a particular task, the task of preaching, and how pitiful it is for those who wrongly think that God has called them to preach when he has not anointed them to preach or gifted them to preach. Calvin's thoughts helpfully bring us into an alternate angle of the text that is necessary to expound. So think about these words, to the poor. We just considered the words, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me, but now let's think about the words, to the poor. Quote, the prophet shows what would be the state of the church before the manifestation of the gospel, and what is the consideration of all of us without Christ? Those persons to whom God promises restoration are called poor, broken, captives, blind, bruised. This body of people were oppressed by so many miseries that their description applied to every one of their members. Close quote. The reality of our financial wealth See, we tend to think of this in terms of finances. We think about this in terms of money. The reality of our financial wealth, when compared to God, is laughable. The richest man on earth is a pauper when compared to the wealth of the God who created the earth. Think with me about practical matters here. The world's GDP, if you combine all the money that the whole world makes... It's estimated at some $84 trillion. So per year, that's about how much money this generated. According to Forbes, the three richest men in the world are Bernard Arnault, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk. Two of these men are putting billions of dollars into space travel. That's just a fun thing that's extra. Since we measure net worth in terms of assets, these men are incomprehensibly rich when compared to the average person. However, when compared to the net worth in dollar amounts to the one who owns, let's say, a planet or every planet, 
The fact is that God has more planets filled with resources than these three men have pennies combined. According to the European Space Agency, stars are grouped into clusters, which we would call galaxies. The galaxies which we call home, the galaxy singular, which we call home, is the Milky Way, which is estimated to be made up of 100,000 million stars. Further, the article states that there are millions upon millions of other galaxies, which means, for the math junkies, not at home, at church, there are likely between 10 to the 22nd power and 10 to the 24th power stars that exist. So if you are writing it out or typing it out, that looks like a 10 with 24 zeros after it. That approximates the number of stars. It is estimated that there are about the same number of planets revolving around these stars. Why do I bring this up? This means in terms of energy production of those stars and the natural resources of those planets that God's riches would lead him to say at a dinner party, Elon who? In terms of his wealth. Elon Musk is closer to the homeless man who sleeps under the awning than he is to God's wealth, and it's not even close. When Jesus left the glories of heaven to enter into this world, the wealth of Solomon was not impressive to him. In terms of finances, we are all the poor. We are all poor in comparison to God. But I think there's more here, which is of even greater importance. The issue is spiritual poverty. We are ultimately sinners in need of mercy, not poor people in need of financial resources. This is powerfully illustrated by Jesus' actions, the, the way he handled the text that day. And that's why it's helpful to see so much of the surrounding description. You see him picking up the text of the scripture, unrolling it. You see him rolling it back up, sitting back down. So you can see his actions as you read the text. And that's why it's important. That's why it's in there. Because what you're seeing is where he started and where he stopped. That's the key. On the screen, hopefully, can you hit the next slide? There we go. I'm always scared about the slides. So, on the screen, you will see a chart that compares Luke 4.18 with the Isaiah text that he read. So, on the left, you see Isaiah 4.18, and on the right, you see Isaiah. So, what you see on the left, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, to, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Pause there. Jump over to the right side. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to, to bring good news to the poor, uh, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He didn't quote that part. He, he quoted the next line to proclaim liberty to the captives. So, those are very parallel. But then you jump down to the blue part, recovering a sight to the blind. So that's down at the bottom to open eyes that are blind. That's from Isaiah 42.7. And then back on the left, the green part, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. On the right side, the green line, to let the oppressed go free. And then back on the left side, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Look on the right side. You see that line there, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those two are completely parallel to each other. 
Now, what's missing? What's missing on the left is the red part. What does the red part say? The red part says, the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus is making a very powerful statement in his handling of scripture. He's saying, hey, by the way, guys, I'm the prophesied Messiah that Isaiah was talking about. That's about me. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You heard me read these words and you noticed that I stopped where I stopped. The Isaiah passage goes on and talks about a day of vengeance and a day of judgment. But I'm telling you that today is not the day of vengeance. That is to come. But today is a day of mercy. Today is a day of recovering the sight of the blind, setting at liberty those who are oppressed, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. That's what's happening right now. And that's what Jesus was doing that day. That's the reason why the quote stops where it stops. That's the reason why I have this chart here on the slide so that you can see before you what Isaiah says. One of the most interesting features of Jesus' reading is where he stopped. It is highlighted in red on the side, on the Isaiah side of the chart. The point he is clearly making is that he has come into the world to save sinners. He came to preach good news and to bring salvation to his people in his first coming. But the day of vengeance will come in the future. Marshall makes a brief comment on this feature in his commentary. The final phrase, quote, And the Septuagint refers to the divine vengeance on the nations. And this has been omitted, perhaps deliberately, to stress the grace of God. In Luke, the point is not the identification, identifying the speaker as a messianic figure, but rather that the function of this Old Testament figure has now been fulfilled in Jesus who is anointed by the Spirit for this purpose. Stein prefers to emphasize Jesus' messianic anointing and would likely disagree with Marshall's comment quoted immediately prior. Stein also explains more of the purpose behind Luke's presentation of the event recorded here. Quote, The importance of this Isianic quotation from Luke, for Luke, is evident for a number of reasons. First, He did not have to include this quotation in the account, as you see in Mark 6, the parallel account. Mark 6 did not include this. Second, this is scripture, and thus for Luke and his readers, it infallibly reveals the purpose of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is coming, and here's his ministry. And last, finally, Luke points out that Jesus himself chose this passage and described his ministry as aimed at this passage's fulfillment. You remember from earlier, as I described it, normally the reader doesn't get to pick where they want to read. Now, he was handed the Isaiah scroll, but he picked where he was going to read in that scroll. He picked this text, jumped around a little bit, because remember they didn't have chapter and verse divisions, So he sees on this big scroll, like, oh, there's chapter 42. Let me read a line from there and then back down. But I'm going to stop because this is the time of the Lord's mercy and favor. The time of judgment is to come. The day of vengeance is to come. 
This has been the heart of the message I have for you today. So let me ask you a few questions in closing. Do you recognize that Jesus came at his first advent to save sinners? And that sinners are those who are spiritually destitute, impoverished, those with nothing. There's a reason why in our circle we use language like total depravity. That you have nothing to offer to God that God would look at you and say like, oh yeah, you're a real winner. I'm going to pick you. But actually God looks at you and says, wow, you're kind of a loser. You have nothing. You have nothing but sin to offer. You bring nothing to the table except the sin that makes salvation necessary. Do you recognize that? As the song says, you you recognize that nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Do you recognize that all, secondly, do you recognize that all your riches or wealth, no matter how much or how little, simply makes up pavement in heaven? It's not impressive to God. No matter how much wealth you have, Nothing but the blood of Christ can cleanse your sins and give you eternal life. I've heard that, uh, I think Jeff Bezos is, is working on an eternal life project. Now, the, my friend who tells me about things before they happen, he, he told me in 2019 that this was a project, that like, the eternal life project was a thing. And that the science to reverse, en- uh, reverse aging was actually in like full development and receiving millions, if not billions of dollars. But let me tell you, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Jesus is willing to offer eternal life to you for free. Because he paid for it. And his eternal life will work. And it'll work for you. No matter who you are where you come from, no matter how much money you have or don't have, no matter how many important people you know or don't know. Nothing but the blood of Christ can cleanse you from your sins and give you eternal life. Thirdly, do you recognize that Jesus' second coming will be a day of vengeance? That Jesus' second coming will be a day of vengeance. Second Thessalonians 1 says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. You recognize that Jesus' second coming will be a day of wrath, a day of vengeance and judgment. Number four. Do you recognize that eternal hell waits all who reject Christ? 
Eternal hell awaits all who reject Christ. That should be something that adjusts our paradigms. That should be something that changes our priorities. And it it should be something that changes who and what we fear and don't fear. You see, if you are in Christ, if you're trusting in him, if you're born again, if you're a Christian, if you're saved, you don't need to fear death because you fear God. You know him and he knows you. You're written in the book of life. Your eternity is secure. And so on that basis, you don't need to fear men either. You don't need to fear what people say about you or do to you. The worst they could do is kill you. As Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So that actually has a transformative effect on your mind, the way you relate to other people, things that you're afraid of, things that you're not afraid of. All that stuff gets adjusted as your worldview is shifted. Number five, have you heard Christ's offer of mercy and pardon? Have you personally heard that? Have you heard his offer of mercy and pardon that is to be received by faith alone and it is given to all who repent and believe? And if you have heard that, praise God. If you think you might be hearing it and you're starting to, your heart is starting to be awakened to this, I would urge you with the, the writer of Hebrews, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. Come to Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Number six, have you been gripped by your own spiritual poverty apart from Christ? Have you been gripped by your own spiritual poverty apart from Christ? Or do you still have some kind of ego thing going on with your life where you think like, no, I'm actually, I'm really something. Are you clinging to Christ as your only hope? as your true riches, that Jesus is your true riches, that Jesus is your ultimate and greatest inheritance. Now, for those who were here during the Sunday School Hour, you'll understand I'm not saying that money doesn't matter. It does matter. We spent like an hour talking about it this morning. But all that stuff burns up eventually. You die eventually and you can't take it with you. And lastly, have you been overcome by the adoption that you've been granted as an adopted child of God and as a recipient of the inheritance of a brother of Jesus? Because the scripture says that if you're a Christian, you're literally a joint heir with Christ and his inheritance is yours. So where you were once In poverty, spiritual poverty, the poor, the oppressed, the destitute, the imprisoned, that was your status. You were at the bottom of the barrel. Maybe you dug a hole through the bottom of the barrel and you were in the dirt underneath of that bottom of the barrel. That was you. But you've been born again. You've been adopted into his family. You've received the inheritance of a child of God that the son of God, your older brother, Jesus, has earned for you. 
As I was preparing this and studying, something about this just struck me last night, thinking about this. It might also be, be all this prep work that I'm doing for this, our trip down to the conference next week. And I'm like inviting people to a dinner and like, hey, can you come? Hey, can you come? And like doing that times 100 because I got to fill a bunch of seats. And thinking about a person who we would all maybe regard very highly and saying, I don't know, listen, name, name your favorite preacher. Someone. What'd you say? Vody. All right, so let's say Vody. I was hoping someone would say Vody. So let's say Vody's your favorite preacher. Let's say you're at the G3 conference. So there's like 6,000 people there. Now let's imagine this as a foretaste of heaven. So it's going to be a multitude of people in heaven, and there's going to be certain figures there who get like significant rewards. Now imagine with me, scale it down to G3 conference and there's Vody. Kind of probably the most honored person at this whole event, I'm guessing. If you combine the heart attack, the open heart surgery, the recovery, the media firestorm, the best-selling book, the, the raising of a million dollars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This guy is like kind of a big deal. Someone whom the, the, the red carpet's going to be rolled out in front of. Now think with me about heaven. Jesus, as the heir of heaven, the most honored one in a place with what, billions of people? And his inheritance, his reward, the honor that he has earned is actually given to you. I was with a guy um, on Monday who uh, does a lot of work over at the UN. And this week was the UN General Assembly. I used to live over in that neighborhood, but it still wasn't really like a thing that I thought about too much. But this guy wanted to meet me and wanted to meet in the location on the inside of the security line. I got there a little early and there were U.S. Marshals everywhere. I know this because it said so on their chest. And all kinds of <laughs> officials and guards and everything with lots of uh, cool-looking weapons in their hands. And I realized, like, I'm not getting in. And neither are all these other people trying to get in because they don't have the right documentation or whatever. But I'm watching, like, black SUVs with very tinted windows drive through, and they go in. And then I'll see, like, a police officer on a bicycle ride in, and he'll say, the two bikes behind me are, are good, too. And so there'll be, like, a delivery guy on a bicycle behind him with, like, pizzas or whatever. So those are the people going in because they have clearance. Finally, the guy that I was waiting for appeared, and he told me to come over to this certain area. And he looked at the security guy, and he said, hey, he's with me. And then I got to come in. I just walked in. I didn't even have to take my wallet out. I just said, hey, yeah. And it was like that. There were, there were layer upon layer upon layer of security where this guy who just says, he's with me, and I get to go in. And I didn't have to like, produce anything, not even so much as a COVID card. You just get to go in because you're with that guy. 
Now, has it dawned on you that if you're a Christian, Jesus, he's, he's your guy. You're with him. And he looks at you and looks at all the demands of justice, all the law of God, all the righteousness, and, and the things that should terrify us. And Jesus looks at the whole world and says, yeah, he's with me. That's my guy. And it doesn't matter how poor you are in terms of money. If Jesus is your confidence, if he's your savior, that's his view of you too. And that this is truly good news to the poor. Because we are truly bankrupt apart from Christ. But when he is ours and we are his, we have all of his name and assets and inheritance and honor and privilege that have been given and granted to us. Now, in in conclusion, hear this quote from Martin Luther. God receives none but those who are forsaken. He restores health, but to none that are sick to none but those who are sick. He gives sight to none but the blind and life to none but the dead. He does not give saintliness to any but sinners, nor wisdom to any but fools. In short, he has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to recognize that Christ has come into the world to save sinners, to save those who are in poverty, and that is each of us. But that we would recognize there is a day of judgment coming where all who are outside of him will come up to a throne, and will be judged, will be inspected. And if they're not with Jesus, they'll be rejected. I pray that you would help us, that we would not resent the reality of our spiritual poverty by nature, but that we would embrace That's who we are in and of ourselves. But for Christ and his blood shed for us, his substitution, his taking of our place and granting us his righteousness, we are granted access to you. Separation from our sin and union with Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in these things more and more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.